This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. The Wolf of Wall Street. Yes. You created an internet buzz yeah, a little bit with that. Yeah. Well, I, I love Martin Scorsese, so I went to see Wolf of Wall Street. That trailer just looked like Leo DiCaprio finally having fun in a movie, which the Revenant should be proof enough that he just drags himself through unpleasant experiences to get an Oscar. Alyssa Wilkinson is a film critic. Her writings appeared in Books and Culture, Rolling Stone, the LA Review of Books, and more. She currently writes for Vox.com, but prior to that, she was the resident film critic at Christianity Today, where she wrote the review for this film. Wolf of Wall Street looked fun, so I went and saw it. I still maintain strongly that it's a great movie. It's full of totally over-the-top content, although the Wall Street people I know from that era say it is not over-the-top enough. It's based on a memoir by its main character, but the movie makes fun of him throughout the whole movie. And if you don't get that, then you got to look real hard at your own heart, I think. But yeah, I, I mean, I reviewed it positively and then I gave a very, 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 very long content advisory. Still the longest one I've ever done. I think it's four paragraphs long. And I was like, please don't think that I'm telling you to go see this movie, but you should definitely know about the movie and know what's great about it. Certain readers appreciated that and other readers did not appreciate that. And one woman didn't read the review, but saw my rating and took her children. Which oh is my goodness. very unfortunate. Now first he sings, and then he goes, and what it means, it's hard to know. From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's show, my guest is Alyssa Wilkinson. We'll talk about Christians and movies, about what it means to be a critic, and what it means to be a Christian writer in the mainstream media. We'll also talk about art in general, about the particular cultural moment we're living in, and one of my favorite subjects, David Foster Wallace. So stay with us. someone who loves Martin Scorsese and who liked The Wolf of Wall Street, Alyssa's background is surprising. My parents, when I was tiny, they kind of freaked out about being parents. They were very young and they had kind of a spiritual epiphany, ended up at the church that I grew up in, which was non-denominational, but really kind of Baptist in its orientation. And it was really great church and a big church for upstate New York. Uh, So like 1,200 constitutes a big church up there. And I really grew up there very tightly tied to the church. And then um, I went to the school there. And then in the sixth grade, I started being homeschooled. So yeah, so I grew up in church as much as a person might, but in a very conservative world. Homeschooling in the 90s was, you know, pretty pretty fundamentalist in a lot of ways. So there was a lot of kind of isolation going on. Um, I think a lot of people were just trying to figure out how to raise their kids right. And so there were a lot of strange kind of movements within homeschooling. You know, overall, it was a positive experience for me, I think, and let me really explore my interests a lot. In 2014, news broke of a scandal within that homeschooling community. The scandal surrounded Bill Gothard, the leader of an organization called the Institute in Basic Life Principles. 
At least 18 people have now joined a lawsuit accusing Gothard of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. Around the time the scandal broke, Alyssa wrote an essay about her own experience with Gothard's Institute. She was drawn to it. The attraction to the Gothard world was partly that several of my friends were part of sort of the kit and caboodle, the homeschool group, all the seminars and the whole package. And my father in particular decided we weren't going to join, largely because they said you had to shave off any facial hair you had in order to join um, their homeschool program. But I was around it, and it was attractive because there were a lot of rules that told you exactly what you would do, and if you followed those rules, then you would fit into the group and you kind of knew your place. And that was, you know, it's just very attractive to any kind of teenager who's looking for their place in the world. I think for young women in particular, um, you really want to belong to a group, and you want to be part of that group and you want to have like all the signifiers of being part of that group. And there's like a pressure that's external, but it's also internal. And I think my own personality type is to always want to be part of the group on top of that. And so when I started being homeschooled, suddenly I didn't have a natural group anymore. You know, there weren't a lot of people being homeschooled at the time. It was still a really strange thing to do. And my old friends from school weren't really part of my life anymore. You know, at some point you sort of grow up a little, I think, and discover that maybe not everything is the way it's cracked up to be. Uh, And also you discover that like rules don't actually make you anything in particular. They don't make you holy. They don't make you smart or good in any way. They're just sort of guidelines. Um, And so as I kind of got older and then went to college, eventually those things fell away. But at the time it was really formative in some ways that I think were positive, a lot of negative ways too, though. And a lot of that has turned out to be more negative, I think, than anyone knew at the time. Was there, uh, I'm curious, you, you comment you made sort of about how your faith changed as you know, over those years. Was there kind of an arc where did it break down and you came back? Or was it just sort of a steady opening up of your, your world? So I got married about a year after college. And about a week before that, my father passed away. I was very close to my father. He'd had leukemia, been in remission, and then it came back. And then he just kind of, it was all of a sudden. It's a, It was a real tragedy. And... That was really hard. So I wouldn't say that I lost faith, but um, well, you die inside a little bit for a while, right? So that was a that was formative for me because it was like, if this can happen to me, do I even want to believe this stuff anymore? And I think I came to the point where I thought, I don't get this. I don't think it's fair at all. But I also think that I don't understand how to make sense of the world without the truths of the Bible. So a lot of the extra stuff fell away. A lot of things just don't seem very important. And then at the same time, I um, was part of small church plants in New York City where the things that we used to fight over in church when I was a kid aren't even issues because you are fighting for survival as a church. I mean, we're renting space and we're just trying to stay alive. The first church I went to has since closed its doors, which happens pretty routinely in New York because of lack of money. Um, And so... I think a lot of the things that used to sort of feel like trappings of kind of church and Christianity, they fell away. Even some fights over theology just started to seem like sort of luxuries for people who had time on their hands and there's there's like work to be done. Um, and so I started to see the world through that lens and then also I started to spend a lot of time with artists, a lot of time thinking about art and being around art and thinking um, about the world in a different way because of that. So I don't know that I can paint 
really a picture or, or draw a trajectory in there, but I know all those things were kind of stirring in my mind. And then once I started teaching and interacting with Christian college students all the time, you know, a lot of questions come to the fore that you just never thought you had to think about, right? Um, and that, that seems to be important at the end of the day for me. Can I talk to them about their faith? And what does that mean for me? Although Alyssa is a professor that teaches writing, literature, and criticism, she studied computer science in college. That degree led her to New York City, where she spent time working as a business analyst in the financial world. She ended up getting a master's degree at New York University and then a master's of fine arts at Seattle Pacific University. During that time, she edited a magazine, did some freelance writing, and worked for the international arts movement, which is run by the artist Makoto Fujimura. Eventually, she kind of stumbled into film criticism. It was totally by accident. Well, I'm sure it was by providence, right? Um, but I, I started dating my husband 11 years ago. He went to film school. He was working in the industry. He took me to see some movies, and I had never really watched movies very seriously. But when you live in New York, you kind of have access to everything. You know, you can see The Godfather on the big screen like every year if you want. It'll Somebody will be playing it. So I started getting interested and talking with him about it. And then I realized that I had a knack for writing. I hadn't really been done any of that before. Just sort of on a whim, took a continuing ed class in film criticism with someone who I now know on a professional level. But at the time, it was just some guy was teaching it. And it turned out that that was really fun. And because of him sort of throwing me a screening opportunity and I just out of nowhere pitched it to paste and they took the pitch, then that's that was my intro. I mean, it was completely accidental. I never intended to do it. But sometimes you sort of do something and then you realize that was something you're kind of uniquely suited to do. And the sort of combination of analysis with having to craft good sentences and arguments is really kind of in the sweet spot of what... I love doing and what I think I have some ability to do. What was your first piece? It was a review of a movie called A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints. Uh, I think it was about 150 words long. I have read it. I'm not totally embarrassed by it, although I'm sure I'd read a totally different review. Ironically enough, my, well, it was my, my fiance at the time was working on the, had worked on the movie before I met him. Um, but it was just a little tiny independent movie that shot in Queens, but had all these, it was actually Channing Tatum's breakout movie, but people don't really know that because nobody saw it. Um, yeah, and from there it was just kind of, they kept throwing me work and I kept doing it. And that's how you get into the business. One of the big influences in Alyssa's writing and thinking is the philosopher Charles Taylor. Taylor's a professor emeritus at McGill University, which is kind of like the Harvard of Canada. And he's written extensively about our current cultural moment. One of his most important works is a book called A Secular Age, which traces the history of thought over the last 500 or so years, marking the change from an age that he calls enchanted, an age where faith, the supernatural, and the possibility of transcendence were taken for granted as part of life, to our disenchanted age, which is quite the opposite. Alyssa discovered Taylor through her friend and the co-writer of her first book, Robert Joustra. And the more I dug in, the more I, I was like, this is this intuitively seems correct. And the more I kind of read other people around Taylor, he started to become a framework through which I could sort of make sense as a critic of what I was seeing in art. I don't actually think Taylor is that good of a source on art itself, but using the frameworks that he puts down, you start to be able to make sense of the world and culture. 
What was it that resonated? I mean, what's the framework that makes sense to you? Because for me, he so described my own experiences yeah. with faith and doubt. Mm-hmm. It's like you're putting into words what I've experienced my whole yeah. life. I'm curious of, not to put words in your mouth, but how did you? When you encounter contemporary art and then you look back towards the past, sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that our art is different because we're worse as people. But actually, a lot of what is different about our art has to do with the fact that the world we live in is just different. The culture, the context that we live in is different. So, and the biggest part for me was this idea of his definition of secular, which is um, when he says we live in a secular age, he doesn't mean it's devoid of religion. He means that uh, that we get to choose amongst religions or no religion or potluck it, you know, we can pull from here and there. Um, whereas in the past, it's not that people couldn't do it. Of course, they were capable of it, but it wouldn't have really occurred to them. Um, it, the the what he talks about plausibility structures, that plausibility structure just wasn't there. And so for someone to, for instance, say, I will no longer be uh, Protestant, I'm going to become Catholic, that was a huge, that had huge ramifications. And today it does, but not at all the way it used to in the past. And a lot of that stuff kind of surfaces then in our art and in the way that people see the world and what they're exploring. You know, so to say that books or artists or Art, works of art were more Christian in the past is true, but it's not quite the whole story because uh, the fact is that some of those things were Christian because that's where the money was coming from or that because that was just sort of the shared language that people had uh, that they would use to express themselves with. And now our shared languages are different. That's really interesting to me when I look at art and think about what shared language artists are trying to use today. It's like the old days, there was this, there was an orientation around something external. And with this, you know, he talks about authenticity as such, right. a, such a thing. And so it's oriented internally. And that's probably the biggest. It's a huge shift. Yeah. yeah. And it's a huge shift also in the way that we see like where meaning comes from. Does meaning come from sources outside of ourselves or does it come from within ourselves? And so much of art today is about looking within yourself and then expressing that that thing. The other thing that really appeals to me about Taylor is that he's not depressed about this situation. He always uses the language of pathologies. You know, there are sort of things inherent to every culture that are, that can quickly become bad for people. But at the same time, you know, some of these things are, are good for us. There's a sense of human dignity, for instance, now that maybe didn't exist 700 years ago. And we can look at that as a positive thing. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely better if you're a minority race. That's right. In yeah, than exactly. So the good old days were not so good for some. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite of Alyssa's essays is about the writer David Foster Wallace. I'm a huge Wallace fan, and for many of the same reasons that I love Charles Taylor, his work seems to vividly describe our experience in a secular age. Alyssa's encounter with Wallace is similar, and it's worth quoting at length to get a taste of what her writing and criticism is like. She writes, quote, I opened a copy of Wallace's first essay collection, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, and it lit me on fire. I fell violently in love with the narrator because any person who can say what you're thinking before you find the words is irresistible. He wrote long, beautiful, tumbly sentences and invented adjectives like methamphetaminic and made me laugh until I hiccuped at inappropriate jokes. Then he turned around and said something about what it was like to be a person and I'd forget to breathe for a while. 
He wrote about David Lynch and math and tennis and TV and despair induced by a luxury cruise, and I thought someone had pointed a fire hose directly into my brain and soon my soul, end quote. A little later, she describes Wallace as, quote, a writer haunted by religious questions, by the line between belief and unbelief and how it makes us live, by the struggle of living decently as a person surrounded by other people and maybe watched over by a presence. It is this that still leaves me breathless now and then, along with the sentences and the laughter. There's nothing glib in Wallace. The philosopher Charles Taylor suggests that the difference between believers and unbelievers is not what they think so much as how they deal with the three things humans experience. Fullness, that feeling of euphoria and rightness you get when you're happiest. Absence, the exact opposite. And the middle condition, the things are pretty okay place in which many of us are fortunate enough to live our daily lives. Everyone wants to experience fullness, and most everyone structures their lives around that pursuit, Taylor argues. But to believers, the place to find fullness is God, or something godlike. For unbelievers, it's to be sought within ourselves. Wallace hung himself while his wife was out for a walk. He did this after a lifetime of struggling with depression, which might best be described as the unabated experience of absence. In his most popular work, This Is Water, a commencement speech he delivered at Kenyon College, he talks about the struggle of living in that middle condition, the everyday banality graduates were about to enter. The harried commute, the line at the grocery store, the grumpy cashier, and the myriad petty, unsexy choices one must make every day to live as if other people are real beings with real feelings. When you read the rest of his work, you realize that speech functions as Wallace's ideal of what he wishes life could be. It lays out his own yearning for fullness, for a world in which everyone is aware of and careful with others. Be mindful of those around you, he says, something that sounds a lot like the unbeliever's tactic for dealing with it all. None of this stuff is really about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death, he says near the end of the speech. Except it totally is, and he knows that because he also says this. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. You can read his earlier declaration about religion at face value, or you can know that Wallace is always trying to connect with his audience and detect a characteristic hyper-awareness of his listeners' prejudices and his stretch to imprint something on their brains. What we worship, the thing we stretch for beyond ourselves that gets us closer to fullness— is his obsession, end quote. I asked her about how she first encountered Wallace. I'll put it this way. I knew I was supposed to read David Foster Wallace because I have read books before and people said I should. Um, and then I was uh, at my first MFA residency. Uh, I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We were holding the residency on the campus of St. John's College and I went in the St. John's bookstore and there was a collection of essays. It was... Um, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, that collection. And I was like, I should read this. And I bought it and I started reading it. And the first essay I read in it was the title essay, which is of course the really famous cruise ship essay, um, which is like kind of one of the most religious pieces of writing I've ever read. It's an essay about how things that promise us unlimited luxury and pleasure really shape us to be unsatisfied with anything else. And that's his explicit conclusion at the end. He's not even bearing it. You know, he just says that outright. But it's also screamingly funny. It's one of the funniest pieces of writing I've ever read. And so the more of him I read, the more I was like, who was this guy? Uh, so then over the next couple of years, I kept reading him. And then at some point I decided that I needed to do some research, got a the handy thing about working at a college is you can have an undergraduate research assistant quite easily. So I had one for a semester who would read all of his books and then talk to me about him. Um, 
And I really kind of found in Wallace like the kindred spirit I was looking for, um, the, the guy who maybe he was just on the other side of the line of belief of me, but I feel like I think a lot like him a lot of the time about belief and about what matters. And um, I think that he's such an important writer for that reason, but he's also just a great writer and that's like a wonderful, attractive quality in any person, right? Um, and the story of his death was so sort of tragic for that reason. Julian Barnes has that line, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Mm-hmm. And that just oozes through yes. Wallace's stuff too. Yep, that's right. At one point he tried to convert to Catholicism. Twice actually, yeah. Yeah, and they, when they were doing the catechism with him, he wouldn't say, I believe in Jesus Christ. He would say, I believe in the personality cult of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think um, a priest eventually told him he asked too many questions or something <laughs> like that. But I love that guy. You know, yeah. that's... that's that. Pr- that he's more of a believer than a lot of people who call themselves believers yeah. in my mind because he had the courage to say what he just couldn't believe. Right. Um, and I, you know, that that's an interesting strain in American literature generally in right. the late 20th century, but I think Wallace encapsulates a lot of it. Yeah, it's that willingness to embrace uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that makes evangelicalism awkward at times yeah. is we believe in a religion that's full of mystery but we're so uncomfortable with with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. That seems to bleed through into the arts as well. Mm -hmm. Another piece of Alyssa's writing that I loved was her review of A.O. Scott's book, Better Living Through Criticism. Scott is the New York Times film critic, and his book is a full-throated argument for the importance and the good of criticism. In it, he defines criticism as a form of art itself. And I asked Alyssa if she agrees. Yeah, I'm very much of the same mind about that. Um, and I, I guess yesterday I had my first class of criticism. I teach it as a creative writing workshop. And so we read Oscar Wilde's um, The Critic as Artist. And um, in it, he sort of makes that case as well. Uh, I think he says something about how um, reading someone, uh, reading a critic is like reading their soul. And and it's because really the best criticism is, is basically personal essays about art. And all I'm reading a critic for is to find out how they encountered a work of art. And so what makes it a work of art is that they've paid close attention to some other work of art. Um, and then they've tried to express that experience to me. And of course, there's rigor that goes into it and research and things like that. That you know, Criticism is not painting. Um, but at the same time, poetry is not prose, but we talk about them both as if they're works of art. Uh, and the reason I read a critic is because I want to see how they encountered a work of art and I want to enjoy their sentences. As a film critic who is also a believer, Alyssa treads interesting ground. She finds herself critiquing movies like The Wolf of Wall Street, which some people would argue no Christian should ever watch. She also finds herself reviewing movies that are either Christian movies or Bible-based movies, and these tend to get visceral reactions from audiences for all kinds of reasons. I get pushback no matter what I write. Sure. I mean, really, no matter what I write. Sure. In fact, Wolf of Wall Street pales in comparison to the pushback I got over Noah, which I praised because I thought it was a pretty good movie, and wow, I mean, that was a legendary Mm. kind of smackdown. What was the nature of that criticism? Um, it was mostly people who had not seen the film but had heard that it was blasphemous. And so they were horrified. I don't know. There's a battery of complaints. Why would we review a blasphemous film? Why would a Christian story, which I don't know in what world Noah is a Christian story since it's you know from Genesis and that belongs to many different religions, not just Christianity. But why would we 
review a movie that a, someone who says he's an atheist made about Noah. God's name isn't mentioned in the movie, which is actually totally not true. They just call him the creator, which to me is actually a much closer right. approximation. And also by that cr- criteria, we'd have to get rid of the Book of Esther while we're right. at Right. <laughs> well, that was my reply. And a lot of people just get very, very angry when Bible movies go off book at all. Although they seem to have a very short memory about this because one of the big complaints I got was, why can't they just stick to the book like they did in The Passion, which doesn't stick to the book at all. Um, but there we are. Uh, it's, you know, that's the nature of movie criticism. So I think there's, um, there was a lot of fear of the movie. There were some people who went and saw it and didn't like it and were just horrified that I liked it, which is more normal kind of pushback that critics get. That's a very Jewish movie and people wanted a Christian movie. And they wanted like happy Noah and his happy ark with his happy animals. And then at the end, like there'd be a rainbow and that's the end. Well, it's not actually the end of the Bible story. It's a tragedy. That's a tale of tragedy. You know, the whole world getting wiped out is not supposed to be a happy children's story. And I think that the way we read the Bible is pretty bad. And the way that we read a movie is bad. And then you put those two together and it's just explosive. This is a broad question, but what is it that you think that evangelical Christians don't get about let's just stick with movies as a cultural artifact because that kind of reaction is constant. I mean, I've never thought of myself as writing film criticism. I don't, because I, I agree with you, it's an art. So every time I write about movies, I'm thinking anthropology and why is this story getting told? But even at that, every time I've written on anything, same with you, anything gets crazy reactions. I mean, I wrote something where I mentioned the Avengers movie. Oh, in no. it, <laughs> And the, again, just the reaction... It was just crazy. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, first off, what do you think that vitriol is about? And if you could sort of have an audience, a captive audience, put all the trolls in a room at once, and they've agreed, we're going to listen. We're teachable today. They've, they've been given a teachable pill. <laughs> what are you going to say? I mean, there's just so many. It, some of it depends on the movie. So like, for instance, when it comes to Bible-based movies, I think that some Christians, especially evangelicals, but not just evangelicals, conservative Catholics often have the same kind of reactions. They react to them the same way that fanboys do to whatever comic book movie came out, right? So in some ways, we act about the Bible as if it's a book that we're fans of and we want to like protect our experience of the story. So, you know, all the kerfuffle over Ghostbusters with all the women, which I thought was like a fun, fine movie and Ghostbusters was never amazing to begin with. But that is very similar in a lot of ways to people who say like, don't destroy my perception of what this Bible story is about and don't you dare interpret it a way that's different from what I think it is. So that's one side of it. Then there's sort of the mentioning of the Avengers or whatever, which is just a fear of the unknown, I guess, in art of anything. I mean, really, art makes us have emotional reactions. That's the point of art. That's the register in which it works on us. You know, you don't have an intellectual reaction to art as viscerally as you do an emotional reaction. And we're we're skeptical about emotional reactions. We're afraid of them. We're not sure kind of where the lines are maybe, or we think there should be lines where there aren't lines. That causes problems. We also tend to think commercially about art. And you can see this in the way we consume art, like within the church made for us, right? We purchase the CD or we kind of, we go to a church based on whether or not we like the music as if we're consumers. And we think about movies always the same way because we pay to see them. And I think that we are doing filmmakers a huge disservice because they're not just making, well, some of them are, but in general, they're not just making a commercial product. 
And maybe it's not for you that they're making it, right? But we want everything to be for us. Like I bought it, I want it to be for me. Or you made a thing, if I don't like it, I want to invalidate it because I didn't like it. Whereas like maybe it's just not your flavor, you know, or maybe it's just not your world that you don't need to be involved in. Um, And so that's part of it. And then I think um, we're not really willing to name our fear, Like, what is it that we're actually afraid of? Like, if you were to watch this, what are you afraid would happen? And people talk in vagaries about that. Oh, I'm afraid, like, my mind would be polluted. And I want to know, like, what do you you mean by that? What do you actually mean by that? We have very vague, strange metaphors about this. We, We don't have any sense of whether or not there's danger and goodness in those things. And I think this is very funny because a lot of the things we consider canonical, like the Chronicles of Narnia, for instance, right there, they're actually quite dangerous books, you know, but we just, we give them to children and we just figure it'll be fine because it's about Jesus or something or because C.S. Lewis wrote them. On the other hand, like a lot of what passes for Christian media, I think is very deeply dangerous and we just kind of let it go because, uh, you know... It was made by Christians. Yeah, unpack that a little bit for me. What's what's dangerous about it? Well, um, God's Not Dead, for instance, as a film or as a franchise, as it's becoming, the God's Not Dead cinematic universe. In that cinematic <laughs> universe, um, atheists are hateful, always. Christians are not, always. And, you know, in the first film spoiler alert, they literally kill the antagonist at the end of the film. It's like a revenge fantasy, right? These are these are films that are political and not, not big P, but little P about our team winning and the other team losing. And I think that shapes our imaginations in really dangerous ways. Even if sometimes it's true, even if we're persecuted, like you don't see the early Christians like going out there and fantasizing about like rising up against their, the people who are putting them in the arena, they're loving them. And I don't see those kinds of dangerous stories that might actually confront us and challenge us being told in Christian media so much. And this isn't true for every Christian movie that's been out there. But on the other hand, there's a lot that are just completely banal and like they're, they're basically, they're blancmange. They're like nothing, right. you know, it's like pudding. And it's then, the Amish fiction version of Christian right. movies. And then so. what that teaches us to want is bland entertainment that won't, challenge us in any way. And then if I were to say to you, well, why don't you watch this movie and it's not in English? Well, you know, well, I don't, I just want to sit back and relax at the end of the day. Right. So we become very, we have very weak junk food palettes about, about art and entertainment that is turning us into people who are unable to engage with the important things in our culture. Yeah. What do you hope is, is for your voice as an influence, um, how do you hope to, to shape the way Christians are looking at art in the years to come, like how would you like to look back and go, mission accomplished? What, how, are things, how are things different? I would love to see, especially young Christians who sort of sense that just because something is branded as Christian, they might not have to like it or even feel as if there's something wrong with it, that they can have the courage to say, I don't like it and here's why and actually have a, a good reason for that. That's the work of criticism. I think that's important. And I think also to sort of show them the riches that are out there in culture from religious and non-religious filmmakers alike. Um, And then on the other side, and I actually feel like this is often a lot more successful, I would just love to be always a reasonable voice in culture who's informed by Christian belief, 
um, that some things are good and some things are not good. But that is just sort of in the mainstream. I mean, so much of Christian criticism has not really been criticism at all, but has been people just like yelling about swear words. And that is honestly the perception that's out there um, because there's been little to none of it in the mainstream about popular culture that is for for readers who both are Christians and aren't Christians. And so that's really my goal is to be able to say like, you know, there's a Christian perspective on this, just like there might be a feminist perspective on this, or, you know, there's all kinds of sort of ways of looking at art. And the Christian perspective has things to say to us that um, that everyone ought to listen to and think about, even if you ultimately disagree with it. There's a huge hunger for that. People are really interested in this. I've never really had any problems or people saying, oh, you just said that because you're a Christian. And in general, I think that leads into a better way of looking at art. And so that's a service I hope to people more broadly. And it's funny because I I feel like a lot of people are like shocked. They're like, oh, how did you sneak in? Like as if I did something sneaky. And like all I did was contact an editor and say like, hey, I write for Christianity Today. What if I wrote this essay? And they're like, great. So I think there's a lot of space that people just assume they won't be accepted. And, you know, we can take courage. I mean, we're not insane. And nobody actually thinks that either. Well, and the other thing that you did is you worked really hard on your craft. Well, I can pump the SPU MFA. That was a hugely formative experience. I had thought I was good going in and I just had no idea. So I had a lot to learn. That was already, I was already a professor and I was almost embarrassed by how much I had to learn. And I'm still learning every single day. You'll find links to several of Alyssa's articles in our show notes, including several of the ones mentioned on today's show. You also find links to our book, which I highly recommend. It's on dystopian movies and contemporary culture. We'll also have links in there for the David Foster Wallace book she mentioned, and if you're interested, a link to what I think is the best primer on Charles Taylor. It's by James K.A. Smith. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's the end of the year, and it's a time when people tend to be generous. So consider donating and helping us keep this project going. You can do that at harbormedia.com slash donate. This episode was produced and written by me, It was recorded and mixed by Mark Owens at ResonateRecordings.com. Special thanks to Scott Slusher and Lachlan Coffey. Daniela Rueda is our administrator. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Our soundtrack is by Roman Candle and Dan Phelps. Links to their work are in our show notes. Chris Bennett designed our logos. One regret from this interview, there's one issue that I left unchallenged, and I couldn't record this without saying it. Alyssa, the original Ghostbusters movie is a Bill Murray masterpiece. So you're totally wrong on that one. And I wish I'd had the presence of mind to confront this at the time. Hey, we'll be back next week. And my guest will be doctor, president, and self-proclaimed intergalactic keeper of souls, Dr. Gregory Thornberry. It makes me mad sometimes when everybody, and, you know, rightfully so, makes fun of Joel Osteen. But at the end of the day what his story is really about is like somebody that got shoved forward and had to take a job they didn't want to do his dad died of a heart attack and everybody's like looking at him so i think you it begins in sympathy right right um you're probably going to cut that out aren't you heck no heck no No, this guy has sympathy for joel osteen yeah, no, I What mean, the heck? He's not reformed anymore. <laughs> Thanks for listening. See you next week.
This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?